Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is it that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon us. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from the raging. For the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Well, good morning, everyone. Okay. Thank you, Jane. Jane, do you remember what was happening a year ago today? You and Brian were pulling out of my driveway taking our truck and our van to come out here. I was, love the iPhones, they, they just pop up with memories. And I'm just like, hey, I remember that. It's, it's been a year. Um, this has nothing to do with the sermon. I, I was thinking yesterday at Marilyn's um, funeral service, just over the past year and, and the little that I got to know her, and I told Dale afterwards that, like, when I first got here, like, th there was a little bit of just, like, this is new, this is, like, 2,000 miles away, this is, I think this is working, and a few weeks in, it was Marilyn that was, like, the final bit that I needed to be, like, yes, this, this works. And it was because, for some reason, Riley and her just clicked, and I remember... Riley running to the door to the to the elevator to open it for her and running upstairs to to open the door upstairs and Marilyn's smile and Riley's smile and I remember being like yep this works it was just something about just like knowing that my family was happy I was like cool this this is good so yeah it's been a good year uh, before we continue let's pray Lord God, thank you so much for your word, for your power, for your grace, for your mercy. Lord, as we study and look at your word this morning, I pray that you will speak to us through your Holy Spirit, that you will reveal 
your truth to us. We thank you for this time that we have together. Amen. While Pastor Jeff and Angie are on their much-deserved sabbatical, he's asked myself and a few others to step in and give the message on Sunday mornings. And the theme that he's chosen for us is God's heart for the world. So each of us are going to be tying our messages into that central theme. And I firmly believe that all Scripture points to this central truth, that God loves the world, all of it. Old Testament, New Testament, prophets and gospels, narratives and epistles, the, the whole of Scripture, all 66 books, the very Word of God, it communicates over and over and over again the message of God's love and mercy for all people in this world. And being that we are evangelicals by tradition, we certainly can't ignore Scripture, right? This means yes. Are you guys awake? Like, we had the loud noise and everything. Like, I'm, I'm pretty sure that usually works. Here's a big Theology 101 statement, and it's going to sum this up. And just so you know, I'm going to keep coming back to this over and over and over again. And it's going to sound like a broken record because I want you to grasp this. So post it on Facebook, tweet it, add it to your Insta story, tape it to your your fridge, put it on a sticky note on your bathroom mirror, whatever you got to do in order to keep this fresh in your mind, okay? If your study of theology results in loving God, but not all people, you might just be loving the idea of God. Let me say that again. If your study of theology results in loving God, but not all people, you might be loving just the idea of God. Make sense? Come on, guys. Give me something. All right. Goodness. It's like quieter than when I rehearsed by myself. I'm like, come on. <laughs> Jonah is a pretty well-known story, especially if you're someone who was a kid or who has had kids while also being aware of Veggie Tales at any point since 2002, or if you have a son named Logan who watches it constantly over and over and it helps him. But even if you weren't raised in the evangelical Christian subculture bubble that I was, uh, chances are you still know the basics of the story of Jonah. And I'd wager that he is right up there with the story of David and Goliath in terms of being a story from the Bible that is well known to everybody. Like whether you have ever been into a church, you've probably heard of Jonah. And since we're going to be talking about a story that is so well-known, that is so ingrained in our brains, I'm going to give you a quick assignment, and I want you to use only what you know of Jonah as of waking up this morning. Okay, before we have dug into the text of Scripture, I want you to write down on your note sheet a single, complete sentence, what you think is the main idea of the book of Jonah. Before we have studied it, before we have gone verse by verse, what is the main idea of the book of Jonah? There's only four chapters, okay? And at the end of our short time together, I'm going to ask you to re-examine what you've written down. Why? Because learning is fun, okay? Uh, but also, we all have blind spots when it comes to understanding Scripture outside of our culture, and it's important to be consistently open to the Holy Spirit, 
to be open to God helping us understand his word instead of assuming that we have it all figured out. Instead of walking in here and be like, the pastor's preaching on Jonah. I've heard this one. And then just tuning out. We don't want that. Okay? So everyone have something written down. What you think is the main idea. One sentence. Not asking for a paragraph. Okay? Now, if it's a run-on sentence, talk to Stephanie. She can help you. (laughs) All right, so let's turn to Jonah 1. We're going to start in verses 1 through 3, because that makes sense. Jonah 1, 1 through 3, says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Here is our introduction to the story. And in this introduction, just three verses, we have two characters. We have God and we have Jonah. Yahweh is the name that you should understand as being said anytime you see Lord in all caps in our English Bibles, right? You've probably heard Pastor Jeff talk about this before. Yahweh is speaking to Jonah, who is one of his prophets, and he gives him a task to complete. Now, a prophet's job was to be the mouthpiece for God, and when a prophet spoke in the name of Yahweh, you knew it was important. But this command by God to Jonah is atypical because prophets of Israel dealt namely with the people of Israel. Sometimes they would, they would address the surrounding nations, which were like the former Philistine area, uh, but it was like immediate neighbors, okay? It was a very small geographic area that they usually talked to. But here, God is telling Jonah to go to Nineveh, which is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. For those of you who were in Pastor Jeff's Sunday school class on Daniel a while back, what should we remember about Assyria? Just shout it out if you know it. Uh, that's not shouting it out, but you know, it works. Okay. Okay. What should we know about Assyria? Okay, nobody was paying attention. Let's not tell him that. So They didn't follow God's law. They were ruthless. I will make y'all do laps, okay? Like let's wake up here. Okay? I got my eyes on you. (laughs) Okay, they ended up conquering Israel, the northern kingdom. Okay, at this point of history, they hadn't yet done so, but they still weren't good. Uh, The people there were, as God said, doing evil. And Jonah not only says no to God, but behaves like a toddler. A toddler that I know personally that I'm not going to mention because Pastor Jeff's rule is I have to buy ice cream afterwards but behaves like a toddler, and he runs the other way, like, literally. There's a map up here, or there was. Yeah, there we go. All right, here's a map. He should go northeast to Nineveh, but instead he decides to flee to Tarshish, which is believed to have been in what is now modern-day Spain. You could not get any further away in, in the known world at that time. Like, this wasn't a, no, I refuse to go. This is, I am fleeing away. I'm going far away. So just three verses in, 
and we should already be asking ourselves two key questions. Why does God want Jonah to go to Nineveh? There we go. Why does God want Jonah to go to Nineveh? Why does Jonah refuse to go? Two questions. Okay? Now, similar to the assignment I had you write down the main idea, I want you to go ahead and do the same here. Okay? These two questions. No spoilers, but the answers, they're going to be pretty clearly laid out when we get to them. Okay? Why does God want Jonah to go to Nineveh? Why does Jonah refuse to go? So you guys showed up this morning. You didn't know you'd have homework. In the meantime, this book is very fast-paced. So we aren't given the chance to dwell on those two questions. There's one, two, three, and then immediately in verse four, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Whoa. Like, escalated quickly, whoa. Suddenly in verse five and six, we have the mariners, not, not my baseball team, but the sailors. And the sailors were afraid. Each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Or basically, Why are you asleep? And he's like shaking him awake. Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So now in these verses, we're introduced to some side characters the sailors and their captain. And we know from what the captain said in verse 6 that they are not Israelites. Okay? Where Lord is used by Jonah, remember, all caps means Yahweh, personal name of God. Okay? The word used here by the captain is Elohim, or El. And that just means God. And while Jonah will sometimes use Elohim or El, uh, contextually we can discern that, that the captain just means any old El. He doesn't care. Okay, any deity. So when the captain goes down into the hold and he's frantically trying to wake Jonah up and, and tells him, call out to your God on the off chance that whoever that God is, that it'll save us. He means it. He does not care in the slightest who Jonah worships at that moment. They all have their personal gods. Okay? He's not looking for a theological discussion of coffee. He's just like, pray to whatever or whoever like, we need help. Jonah, we're, we're doing the same over here. We want, we might die. We want to live. Pray, do something. Now, I have a bit of a phobia of deep, dark water. This is not a secret. It is not hard for me to imagine being absolutely, totally terrified in this situation. But what is especially concerning is that these guys are professionals. Like, this is what they did. They basically lived on the water and didn't mind it, which I find absolutely insane. Like, why would you want to live on water? But, you know, God gave land for a reason. Be on the land, okay? So the fact that in this storm, they are afraid, these professionals are afraid, says a whole lot. We should be picturing something immense. And I can't help but feel bad for these guys because this isn't just a storm, they are caught between Yahweh coming after one of his prophets who has gone rogue. They might die just because of the actions of a paying customer. Okay? They didn't wake up in that morning deciding to do bad. Okay? They were just there, and they are just like, yeah, sure, hire us, and we'll take you over there. And now, this is the situation that they're in. 
of evidently praying to random personal gods doesn't work because immediately after in verses 7 and 8, we're told that the sailors decide to cast lots. Now, you can think of this like doing a straw poll, you know, where, where you have a bunch of straws and one's shorter than the other and you hold it and everyone picks and then whoever has the short straw pays for dinner, you know, like that type of thing, okay? Um, but the idea here is they, they want to figure out who is to blame for this storm. It's not natural. They're just like, this is immense. It doesn't make any sense. Why is this storm here? Somebody on the ship must be to blame. Let's figure out who it is, okay? Now, God decides in his wisdom, to use this act of randomness in order to single out Jonah, okay? To air his grievances, to, as, as the young people say, put him on blast, okay? I can't get away with that. That's the only time I'm going to say that, okay? Um, but he decides to communicate to the sailors that Jonah is the, at fault, Okay? He is the cause of this near-death experience. And the sailors immediately demand that Jonah tell them what is up. And he comes clean in verses 9 and 10. He answers them, I am a Hebrew. I worship Yahweh, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were seized by great fear and said to him, what have you done? Like they're freaking out, okay? Jonah knows who he is. He knows that he's a prophet. He knows his job as a prophet. He knows who Yahweh is. He understands that his God is the creator of everything. And now the sailors know this too. It was commonly believed that there were many gods, many El. Okay? Different families had their own God. Um, a tribe of people might have a specific God or two that they worshipped. Uh, but, but that supposed deity was limited. It was in their home area, or it oversaw only certain things like crops or, or having children. But that's not what Jonah knew to be true. Jonah tells the sailors, I worship Yahweh, who is God of all things, who doesn't just have a limited amount of power, but who actually created the sea that we're on and the land that we sailed away from. And suddenly the sailors realize that this storm is a targeted attack by a God more powerful than any that they had worshipped before. And that God is targeting a person not just in the general area, maybe way over there, but who is on their boat, who is standing next to them. And they are terrified. Okay, this Yahweh that Jonah is talking about is so powerful, in fact, that he is able to chase him across the land and across the sea, and he's coming for them. Okay, and this is bad. They are all the more terrified. Does this make sense to you? Does this make sense why they'd be afraid? All right, just see, you were quick to answer that time because you don't want to do laps. All right. They asked Jonah in verses 11 through 13 what they should do to stop the storm. He tells them that their only hope is to kill him by throwing him overboard, which is a choice. Um, to me, there's a clear other option that doesn't involve attempted murder, but maybe that's just me. The sailors and their captain, to their credit, they don't want to do this. Imagine if you were in their shoes, though. Like, you're about to drown a passenger who's on your boat, who's running from his God, who apparently made the sea and the land and is the cause of this storm. What if you get in the way? Like, what is this God that you have just been introduced to going to do to you 
if you get in the way of him exacting vengeance, be like, we did it for you. They're probably thinking like, oh, we did, we did too. Like, they don't want to do this. The storm is ongoing, remember? It's just crashing waves and everything. So they eventually, probably quickly, agree to do what, what Jonah requested. They, they tried to row back. They couldn't make it happen. Okay? But they agree to do what, what Jonah asked. And then something really, really interesting happens. We're told that they pray to Yahweh. And they ask forgiveness for what they are about to do. And this is a huge deal in terms of character arc. Okay, remember, they started with whoever your God is, we don't care, but whoever it is, pray to it, him, th- whatever. Okay? And now we're at the point where we read in verses 14 through 16. Therefore they called out to Yahweh. O Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood for you, Yahweh, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared Yahweh exceedingly, and they offered sacrifice to Yahweh and made vows. Again, whoa. Something I find amazing about chapter 1 is that the sailors on that ship are even mentioned at all. Like, it You'd be forgiven for thinking that since they're not the main characters, okay, they're, they're not the main point of this narrative, if the author is trying to communicate Jonah's story, it really doesn't matter if he includes anything about the sailors other than there were sailors on the boat and he hired them. Like, there doesn't need to be anything else in terms of telling Jonah's story, but they're there. And that's because the sailors stand in stark, strong contrast to Jonah. Unlike Jonah, they respect Yahweh. They respect his authority. They want to fix this problem that they are in without sinning against God. Even though they are not Israelites, they did not originally worship Yahweh, they end up praying to him. They they end up offering sacrifices to him out of respect and honor. And Jonah does not. He just says, kill me. That's his response. This doesn't make any sense in terms of who he is as a prophet. He should know better. And the sailors shouldn't care, but they do. Jonah, while he knows God, he still chooses his own way. He is so selfish that he asks the sailors to murder him. And why? There was another option. It's called repenting. It's called telling the captain, turn the boat around, okay, I'll pay you double, and I'm going to go back to Nineveh like I was told. Instead of doing the obvious of saying, I've made a mistake, I want a refund, or please do something, he, he doesn't do anything like we think, okay? Instead of the obvious, Instead of accepting that God will do what God will do, Jonah decides that he would rather die because he doesn't care. He doesn't care if he sins. He doesn't care if others sin in the process. He doesn't care if he causes others to murder because he refuses to see that God is God. I'd argue, maybe selfishly, that death is probably what Jonah deserved for his behavior. Like, How dare he? Honestly. But God has mercy on him. And in verse 17, it says that God provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. He is inside the fish for three days and nights. And all of that 
was in one chapter. Just one. Okay? I wasn't kidding about this book being fast-paced. This, this is like the core of what most people know, is that there was a guy named Jonah, and he got swallowed by a fish, and that was in one chapter. Okay? And in this opening chapter, we're shown someone who should be following God, but who refuses to do so on every level. And as a counter, we see sailors who do not follow Yahweh, but who end up praying to him, and being mercifully spared from the storm. This contrast of an unrepentant Jonah with a repentant people of the world, it's going to pop up again later. Unfortunately, we don't have time to to pick apart this entire book verse by verse. It is an easy read, though. Um, You could go through this whole thing in one sitting very easily. I highly recommend you do so. It's four chapters, okay? But we're going to skip ahead to chapter 3. Chapter 2 is his prayer that he, he prays to God while in the fish. Chapter 3 takes place after Jonah has been vomited out of the fish. He ends up on dry land again, not in Tarshish, not in Spain, but uh, back on the eastern shores of the Mediterranean. So let's check out the first three verses of chapter 3. Again, with the first three verses. You know, it works. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose, went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. He listened. Look at that. I'd probably listen too if I had fish guts all over me. (laughs) Quick call back to the the two questions we started chapter 1 with. Why does God want Jonah to go to Nineveh? Why does Jonah refuse to go? I want you to notice... I am not asking what does Jonah, oh, what does God want Jonah to go to Nineveh for? So check your answers. Make sure that's not how you answered it. Okay? If the question was what, we could easily answer that. It was to go and call out against the city. Okay? That's what both chapters tell us to do. That's that's the action that Jonah was supposed to take. However, what is not what we should be asking. We are asking why. Why did God want Jonah to go to Nineveh? I freely admit, words are hard, okay? I I keep telling my wife I need a shirt that just says words are hard. I get it, okay? But what and why are very different, and your answers to the question will be very different depending on how you understand the question, okay? So just make sure that you're looking at why. Unlike chapter 1, this second attempt in chapter 3 results in the intended action. He actually does it. He travels to Nineveh. He goes into the city. He spends three days uh, proclaiming the message that Yahweh wanted him to proclaim. And just like the sailors who recognize the power of God through the storm, the Ninevites recognize God's power. They respond to this message with repentance. Verse 7 through 9, the last half of verse 7. By the decree of the king and his nobles, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone who turns from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Side note, more could be said on the nature of their repentance versus the sailors' repentance based on the words used but I don't want to derail our time together. So if you want more to think about, talk to me afterwards. I'll point you further down that path. Chapter 3 ends with verse 10. 
And this is the pivot point around the whole story. It's been building towards this moment. Verse 10, chapter 3. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. What I love about the story of Jonah is just how clear it is in detailing the motivations of the main characters. There, this isn't always the case with dealing with Scripture. So sometimes we choose to infer some additional background on, on people we read about. It makes it more engaging or visual. And this isn't necessarily a bad thing. I'm not knocking it. Okay? For many, many of you, for instance, many of you have uh, watched The Chosen. It uses artistic license to fill in some of the surrounding world of the Gospels. I don't have a problem with this. Steph and I watched the first season. Overall, we liked it. Eventually, we'll get to the others. Um, but that artistic license isn't scripture. We all know that. Okay? So the show infers some motivation on some key people, expands on their character to make it more TV-friendly and more engaging. An example would be how Matthew is portrayed as someone on the autism spectrum, how uh, that leads to difficulties in his connections with other people, with some of the other disciples. And again, it's not necessarily bad. It makes it entertaining. You're like, oh, yeah, I can, I can relate to Matthew. Okay? It's a, it's a tool that's used by great effect by the filmmakers. But with the story of Jonah, we don't have to rely on our imagination as much to give us insight into the main character's motivations. Okay? Even with Veggie Tales, which I'm not saying I'm a, a, like a complete authority on, I have seen it more than all of you combined. I'm willing to bet that. Okay? Just like a couple weeks ago, like, I started hearing it. I'm like, it's following me. And Cindy was watching it in here. I'm just like, okay. And then a couple days ago, I was, I was working on this, and I walked home, and he's watching it on the TV. I'm like, oh, no. So, yeah. Just going to, like, have spasms about this. Anyways, even with VeggieTales, the, the motivation of Jonah in there, in that cartoon, is firmly rooted in what we read in the text. Okay? Firmly rooted. Even though he's a vegetable. Okay? Remember those two, que- those two key questions I asked. Why does God want Jonah to go to Nineveh? Why does Jonah refuse to go? We could guess blindly. We could just add things to his character, or we can just simply read the answer because it's right there in the text. Okay? We're going to start in chapter 3, verse 10. We're going to read through chapter 4, verse 3. It says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he had said that he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to Yahweh and said, Yahweh, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Now, therefore, Yahweh, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Both God and Jonah, their motivations are crystal clear. Jonah angrily explains it to us. He is so clear that we don't need to add anything in order to answer those two basic questions. Why did God want Jonah to go to Nineveh? Because he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Why did Jonah refuse to go? Because God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Both questions have the same answer. 
Jonah could not accept that God would choose to show grace and mercy to those people, to those Ninevites. He could not accept that God would dare to love those that he personally despised. Jonah wanted Nineveh to be destroyed, just wiped off the face of the earth. He would rather die himself than live in a world where those people received mercy. That is how much he hated them. And he didn't want to do it because he knew God's character. And God was willing to do it because of his character. Are you tracking with me? Okay. God confronts Jonah in verse 4 of chapter 4. Yahweh asked, is it right for you to be angry? Fair question. And Jonah does what Jonah does. He acts like a child. He doesn't get his way, so he doesn't answer. He just goes off and pouts, which is oh so lovely as a parent. He doesn't respond, he just stomps away. And the rest of chapter 4, which is the rest of the book, details how Jonah went outside the city. He set up a little camp, and he waited to see what God was going to do. Maybe, just maybe, God would do what Jonah wanted. Maybe he would destroy those people that were so clearly not worthy of his mercy. Jonah had made his, his statement. He'd stamped his feet. Maybe God would listen. But God decides to teach Jonah a lesson. Not in a loud, bombastic way like with the storm, but through a gentle, quiet whisper. In verse 6, God provides a wine. Uh, a wine. You could make a wine. God provides a vine and quickly grows, provides shade for Jonah from the sun. But then the next day, God caused a worm to chew the vine, made it wither, fell over, and, and when the sun came up, the heat is just beaten down on, on Jonah. He becomes so hot that he nearly faints. It's possibly sunstroke. He's just like, he's dying out there. Okay? And again, Jonah throws a fit. He declares in verse 8 that it would be better if he just died. And even though this super religious guy should know the right thing to do, he doesn't repent like the sailors. He doesn't repent like the people of Nineveh. He remains defiant in the face of his God. And God calmly confronts Jonah in verses 9 through 11. And I'm paraphrasing. He, he said, Jonah, you care more about that plant. You didn't work for it. You didn't nurture it. It's a plant, Jonah. You didn't water it or anything. Am I not allowed to care for Nineveh, which is full of people who don't even know right from wrong? And that's it. That's the book. That's how it ends. It ends with a question. And it frustrates us. Because we're just like, what? What's going to happen? But it ends with the question we should be answering. Understanding God's heart for the world is so simple, and yet we make it so incredibly difficult because it points to a truth that some of us just don't want to accept, that God loves people who aren't like you. If you claim to be a Christian, you can't ignore this truth. It's in Scripture, for crying out loud. Okay? You can't skip over it. You can't leave it for someone else to wrestle with it. You can't say, ah, those youth, they'll, they'll figure it out. This is for everybody. This is in Scripture. 
It is impossible for you to align your heart with God and not want everyone else to experience the same mercy that you have received. How could you not want everyone to have the same love from your God? Like, if it truly has changed you, how could you not want that? How could Jonah not want that? Again, if your study of theology results in loving God, but not all people, you might be loving just the idea of God. You might be saying, Jared, they're not as faithful as me. It's difficult. They, they dress differently, and they, and they talk differently. They, they don't even attend church as often as me. And you're just like, oh, it, it's all right if I, if I don't love them. But you know what? God loves them just as much as he loves you. But Jared, they, they don't agree with me, and, and we, we get in arguments, and I know I shouldn't be online and on Facebook, but, but they're, they're wrong. And, and, and they don't stand for the same issues as me, and, and they don't vote like me. And God loves them just as much as he loves you. It's not hard, okay? It's like, it's the Bible, y'all. Were the Ninevites part of Israel? No. Did God have an existing covenant with them? No. But did God still show mercy and love those who repented? Those sailors and those people of Nineveh? Yes. Why? Because he is merciful. Because he loves the world and he desires all people to repent and turn to him. God is so merciful, in fact, that he sent his son Jesus to live among us to demonstrate mercy firsthand in ways that honestly made no sense then and made no sense now. Jesus fed the hungry. He healed the sick. He made the blind see. He made the deaf hear. He ministered to those who prostituted their bodies for money, those who sold out their countrymen. He loved them. It doesn't make sense. Okay? He loves those who are seemingly unlovable. He forgives those who look like they're unforgivable. And why? Is it because we deserve it? Is it because we somehow meet him halfway, like we put on the right clothes or we attend church so much during the year? Is it because we pray the right prayers or prove ourselves more worthy than our neighbors? No, it is because he is merciful. 2,000 years later, the church is here because our Savior didn't say, I'm going to let those people have what they deserve. They have it coming to him. He stepped in and he took action. And he loved the sinner. He didn't just feel bad for us and shake his head and be like, and keep on walking. Even though he had done nothing wrong, he allowed himself to be lifted up on that cross in our place. And he suffered and he died for us because that is the very definition of God's mercy. We have the example in Scripture. How can we ignore it? I know you've heard this before. But ask yourselves, have, have you received this mercy? Because if you have, you have got to prove it. The evidence for God's mercy in your life is not determined by how much theology you know. It is not determined by how well you are at, or how good you are at acting Christian in public, or, or how outspoken you are regarding whatever current moral outrage is popular. That's not how it works. The evidence for God's mercy in your life is shown through your actions of goodness and love towards all people, regardless of whether you think them worthy or not. This is scripture. This isn't Jared's opinion, okay? 
We can read this in, in a book of the Bible that is dedicated to this. Again, if your study of theology results in loving God, but not all people, you might be loving just the idea of God. That, or you might just love the feeling of feeling superior to everyone else. I don't know. When we started our time together, I gave you an assignment. I asked you to write down in a single complete sentence what you thought was the main idea of the book of Jonah. And you're not being asked to turn these in. I'm not going to grade them. Okay, that's, that's your job to do for yourself. Okay? But here's the, the main idea of the book of Jonah, and I'm full credit to credit where, where it's due. This is from people that are much smarter than me, from some professors of mine. Yahweh's mercy extends to all who repent. That's it. That's the book signed, summed up in one sentence. Yahweh's mercy extends to all who repent. It is not up to you to decide whether or not someone is deserving of God's mercy. It was not up to Jonah to decide if the sailors were worth it or if Nineveh was worth it. God will freely give his mercy to all who repent, even those we have a hard time accepting, because he loves them just as much as he loves us. And thankfully, we can't stop God. Okay? In spite of Jonah, the sailors still recognized and responded to God's power. In spite of Jonah, the king of Nineveh, along with the people of that city, recognized and responded to God's impending judgment. God would not be stopped by Jonah's holier-than-thou attitude. He still worked, and the people still responded. Christian, if, if you claim to follow Jesus, then let your actions prove it. Don't run from opportunities to display God's heart for the world. Don't be like Jonah and run the other way. It's going to require action. It's going to require swallowing your pride. And it's going to be worth it. And we know this because Jesus told us so in Matthew 5, 7. He said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Let's pray. God, your word is challenging. It's uncomfortable at times. It, it makes us angry because we feel like we have it figured out and we feel like we're doing great. We're checking off whatever list is in our head. And God, I pray that you will chase after us like you chased after Jonah, that you won't let us get away with thinking that it's all about us, that somehow we are better than everyone else. Thank you, Lord, that you love the world so much that you you seek our repentance. You want us to change. You want us to turn to you. You want it so bad that you sent your son. Lord, we thank you and we love you. We seek you. Help us to be merciful to everyone else. In your holy name, amen.